Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, we head to the Jersey Shore. I talk with New Jersey Senator Vin Gopal. He's a senator from Springsteen's Ashbury Park. He talks about how being a small business owner informs his policymaking, how he combats crazy disinformation campaigns that are being targeted at him, and how getting crushed in his first election built the foundation for his future political successes. Senator Gopal is born to run. Enjoy. New Jersey Senator Ben Gopal, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. Great to be chatting with you. So let's start. How are things in the Garden State? Things are going good. You know, people are uh, on the other side of the pandemic now, and we have a busy, busy shore economy, a lot happening at the beach, and um, just trying to get everyone moving in the right direction. Unfortunately, uh, no different than the rest of the country. Gas prices are high, food prices, shipping costs, inflation, and just trying to help residents through that. And how are you seeing the tourist season? What's it look like? And have you also seen any impacts of people working remotely and choosing to work remotely from the Jersey Shore? Yeah, we have seen that. Uh, It's one of the great challenges. I think one of the big negatives out of COVID is that a lot of people are continuing to vote, work remotely. Employers are having a tough time finding employees to come into work. Definitely some of the mentalities have been changed. So um, I think it's something that... Obviously, it's the summer, we're coming into the fall, just figuring out how to get employees back to work. It's going to continue to be a challenge. And obviously, we have a lot of employers who are incentivizing and are are fine and able to be just as productive having their employees work from home and others where that's not the case. So there's a continues to be an incredibly big workforce shortage right now. So these are going to be some of the challenges that we, we try to tackle as a state. Before you got into politics and even now, you are a small business owner. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and then how do the two positions inform each other as you're trying to make policy? Sure. I think all worldviews are important, just like if somebody is a is an attorney or a medical doctor or teacher or college professor and you run for office like so many different folks have, you have different world experiences. You know, I had a small business that I built from the ground up, embroidery, screen printing, signs, and uh, worked hard to try to make the business uh, successful and eventually sold it, uh, 14 employees, and and it really was an incredible experience. And I learned early on that so many of the small businesses, the mom and pops, the one, two, three per people shops, sometimes have distinct disadvantages against large corporations who get big tax breaks, subsidies, IRS benefits from their codes, and do well. And unfortunately, New Jersey and across the country, we've seen a decline in mom and pops. We've seen that in the pharmacy sector, where we're seeing a lot of independent pharmacies have gone under, where 
corporations like CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aid are prospering. I think uh, we need to do more to support our main streets and our mom and pops and our small business owners and can, you can't just let everything get go corporate, which is unfortunately, which is happening. And, and, you know, when we do policies or laws and we got to understand sometimes I think they have an unintended consequence. So for example, when New Jersey did an increase to the $15 minimum wage, I don't think there's anyone that disagreed that you shouldn't get a livable wage and you shouldn't uh, have an increase and, and you can't even live on 15 an hour in New Jersey. You should probably be getting a lot more than that. But the, for the little businesses, they really struggled with that. And a lot of them went under, whereas the, the guy who owned 25 restaurants was able to absorb those costs. We also saw many of those businesses that were offering healthcare and 401ks stopped offering those. So Unfortunately, I think, you know, one of the good things about the $15 minimum wage, we did see an increase across the board. Everybody increased their rates. You go to Amazon or you go to McDonald's or you go to the little coffee shop, they're going to be paying more than 15 to be competitive. But I think a lot of little guys were hurt. And sometimes I think those broad brush policies sometimes can, can have a negative consequence. So that's something I saw as a small business owner. So I have a couple of follow-up questions to that. I think it's invaluable that you have this insight. So I'm the son, brother, and husband of small business owners. And oftentimes the Democratic Party has a hard time representing small business owners when in fact, most of our policies are, are really beneficial and vital to small business. How do you sort of help the party communicate with small business owners in your state? And what do you think the party nationally could do better? It's a great question. I think the party needs to the party needs to do a lot better nationally when it comes to standing up for working class families and small business owners and things like that. We haven't always shown that. I think government overregulation is, is a big one. We saw a very close governor's election here in New Jersey. Governor Murphy was reelected narrowly, uh, 51-49, maybe a point and a half against Republican former Assemblyman Jack Chitterelli, even though New Jersey has a million more registered Democrats than Republicans. And, you know, I engage in focus groups and other areas on why Democrats also lost the largest number of seats in, in the legislature, including the seat of Senate President Steve Sweeney and many others in New Jersey. Democrats still have a narrow majority, but to have that majority in both houses, but they definitely took a hit this year with the number of seats they lost. I think it was seven total seats in, in the legislature. I think that we have to get back to making sure we do a great job on government services. Former New Jersey Governor Jim McGreevy, who now does reentry, was very successful because he stood up on government programs that weren't working, like auto insurance rates and working to get them down, cleaning up motor vehicle services. Unfortunately, I think we've taken some backward steps. Residents in New Jersey and across the country are still struggling with the, their respective Department of Labor's with, with unemployment cases, in some cases, having been open for years. Residents living in motels can't get a call back. We had motor vehicle lines through the roof at the height of COVID. We had you know 20-year-olds who could just start smoking and could get a vaccine appointment online, but the 100-year-old senior was unable to get a vaccine appointment. I think the Democrats have to look at making sure that government truly represents the people, is responsible, responsive to the people, provides the best government services possible, but also that we focus on cutting some of the red tape. And there's still a lot of red tape 
I've got small businesses that struggle each and every day from red tape bureaucracy from different departments and sometimes towns that just want to nickel and dime them. I think the Democrats have to communicate and actually deliver on how they're going to do better on a lot of these areas. And how responsive is your caucus when you try to raise these issues and try to move the needle for small businesses and producing red tape? I think I'm in California, you're in New Jersey. We do a lot of things well. I think over-regulation is a place that both of our states could use a lot of improvements. Are you seeing a recognition by Democrats that that we can be the party of government, but it's the right kind of government uh, at the right time? You know, somewhat more responsive since the election results last year. In my own election, Governor Murphy lost my district by about roughly 3,000 votes, and I won by 2,600. So I had about over 5,000 voters who crossed over Republican vote for me that went back to Republican. And I try to remind people in my party, you know, I'm, I'm the proud prime sponsor of the Reproductive Freedom Act to protect Roe v. Wade in New Jersey. I sponsored licenses for undocumented to make sure that every resident is treated fairly in the state of New Jersey. I sponsored codifying marriage equality here in the state of New Jersey to put it in our constitution. I'm proud of a number of progressive pieces of legislation which make me a Democrat that I'm proud of, that I supported, I championed, I pushed through. But I had 5,000 crossover Republican voters who decided not to make me lose the district the same way Murphy did, because I think I focus so much on small business issues and our economy and supporting our local law enforcement and trying not to have these divides that have somehow unfortunately caught up in the national climate. You know, you have one Democrat out there in some state that says, oh, you should defund your police department. And then all of a sudden, every every Republican masterfully, they, they put a messaging on saying that all Democrats want to defund their police, even though here in New Jersey, under Governor Murphy, we've had the largest increase in funding for cops. We passed a, a police pension protection bill. We allow them to control their own health care benefits. We've done more for law enforcement, but sometimes it gets lost because the Republicans are so good with the message. And we see the same thing they do right now with the sex education. They try to tell you know, across the country that, that Democrats are trying to teach their kids things that are just completely untrue. And I think Democrats have to do a better job at every level of working the message, controlling the message, and not allowing a small but vocal group of people who have a more effective way to get on social media and then causing concern to well-meaning parents and other residents. And I think we as Democrats have to do a better job on that. We get crushed on the communication side. That makes us all nervous because we have a big election coming up in just a couple of months in 2022. And then again in 2024, how are things looking in New Jersey right now? Yeah, I mean, we flipped the number of seats in 2018. Mikey Sherrill, who is a rock star, and Tom Malinowski, a great representative, Andy Kim. I had the honor of serving on the Democratic Congressional Redistricting Committee. You know, the Democratic map got picked this past year. And so I think we put our our members in a better position to represent their constituents. It's imperative that the national leadership figure out whatever they got to do, whether it's their fault or not, on controlling inflation and gas prices and food costs and everything else. It's the party in power that gets blamed for when things aren't going well. And I think if all the way from President Biden down, if they cannot figure out how to get a grip on some of these issues by September, October, I think the Democrats are going to have a tough time. Right now, it's all pocketbook issues. And uh, I think the 
uh, while other issues are absolutely important and guns and choice and all that other stuff, I think at the end of the day, pocketbook issues are going to be what independent voters, unaffiliated voters are going to be thinking about in November. I want to talk about some of those pocketbook issues. I want to talk about some of those pocketbook issues and what have been your legislative priorities that you've been working on that maybe some Democrats in other states could take a look at as a way to to address those needs? Sure. We push towards expanding senior freeze to uh, make sure that seniors in New Jersey has the highest property taxes in the country to make sure that it's affordable for them and that we can try to keep taxes frozen here. We've looked at a lot of different rebate programs. The Democratic majority here is looking at another one coming up on how to assist families during inflation, looking at trying to cut down a significant amount of our debt, which we have done. The governor and legislature has made full pension payments, which has a big impact on our bond rating or credit rating as far as future spending in the state. And we've you know, looked to invest in a lot of municipal programs, which hopefully will be direct tax relief because those municipalities like the energy tax credit, they're going to be required to give it right to residents and, and homeowners and renters too. So we're also going to be looking at other programs. We've got a huge teacher shortage, nursing shortage. So looking at debt forgiveness, college loan forgiveness, other programs to try to make it easier for folks to go into different industries, but also not uh, come out with a ton of debt. So where the state of New Jersey can be helpful, I think we should. We've also passed and increased the veterans tax credit for veterans and their spouses to get a different direct rebate on when they live in their house every year on, on property taxes, you know, $250 annual deduction. So we've taken a lot that we've looked at when it comes, but we continue, you know, we unfortunately still get a large number of people leaving the state because other states are more affordable. New Jersey has one of the best school systems in the country. So our child is going to continue to make the state as affordable as possible. Of course, people leave the state after their kids are already educated here, and they're not going to other states to do that, which in itself speaks volumes. But our goal is going to be how to keep people here after that. That makes sense. And you're the education committee. So you have a real ability to shape this. And you also have had to deal with sort of some of the national issues, and you've sponsored a bill called the Parents' Rights Bill. Can you talk a little bit about how you try to have these conversations about parents and teaching and education in the climate we're in? Yeah, I think transparency is extremely important. Parents should be involved in their child's education, but at the end of the day, curricula, lesson plans need to be done by teachers and professional educators. I'm not qualified to create a curricula. Just like, uh, you know, I wouldn't be qualified to go do electrical work. An electrician's qualified to do that. I've got some far right wing legislators who want to put cameras in the classroom and do other dangerous things that would just really destroy the teaching profession as a whole. And we can't let a minority group of conspiracy theorists basically hijack the process. So the Parents' Bill of Rights is all about making the curricula transparent. I believe when we have transparency, conspiracy theories are harder for those to push out. And if the sex and health education curricula is transparent and on the website of the school board, parents can go on and just look at the curricula and see that nothing inappropriate is being taught. Makes sense. Yet you've been, I think, targeted by some smear campaigns unfairly for your efforts to have teachers be able to teach, as you say, what they're professionals in teaching. Can you talk about some of those efforts and how you combat misinformation in this day and age? 
Yeah, it's just uh, going out there and really just really talking to folks about uh, what's happening, making sure that we're communicating, that we tell people that the curricula is on the website, making sure that folks know that they can always speak with their teachers or their administrators if they have any questions and really just combating the misinformation out there. I had one curricula that came to me where it showed that some stuff like masturbation and anal sex was being taught to second graders and it had a, a school district uh, header on it. So I called the superintendent. It turns out that it's a completely doctored document. Somebody took the time to put graphic design, make it up, and then dropped it in a bunch of parents groups to try to cause havoc. That's what we're up against. And so, you know, that's a crazy story. So when you see that, how do you try to correct information without amplifying the misinformation out there? It's not easy. And some people just, you know, they are going to believe what they want to believe. And, uh, you know, I'm going to, I hope it's not as high as 25%, but there's definitely a percentage of folks out there that their worldviews are different and they're believing the worst in people. And just like in any profession in the world, you're going to have some bad apples. I certainly know some politician bad apples and you got to weed the system. And uh, that's what I think a lot of this comes down to is when we do see problems in, in any field, we work to remove those people from the profession. But, you know, we our teachers are truly doing God's work. They're incredible. They're not well paid. Their rate of growth is not great. They have really difficult jobs. And I'm very concerned by the recent activity that we've been seeing from the far right, that we're going to continue to discourage people from entering this, you know, very, very important profession. Could you talk a little bit about your path into public service? You took on a 10-year incumbent, not an easy race. What got you interested in politics and then what made you want to run for office? You know, I always had an interest in, in government and in politics. Being a small business owner, when I was younger, I used to go to all the anti-war protests in Iraq, inspired by people like Barack Obama and, and others who tried really to believe in the decency, civility, love, and empathy and a lot of the good characteristics. One of the first elections I worked on was then Newark mayoral candidate Cory Booker in 2006, who was also you know very inspiring and, and trying to bring people together. Even if you don't always agree with the principal or the elected official, it's always good to see people putting more positivity out in the world. And those folks inspired. And I ran for office the first time when I was 26 in 2011. And uh, I couldn't have lost by a bigger margin, got absolutely crushed. But I learned everything, what to do the next time. And the next time it, it was, uh, I was more successful, importance of knocking on doors, having a clear message, communicating with your constituents and being transparent and honest. I think that goes a long way. Can you talk a little bit about that decision to run after you've lost? I think a lot of people are so afraid of losing that it paralyzes them from pursuing a career in public service. How did you sort of recover, learn, and then move ahead? Yeah, I mean, I ran six years after I first lost, so it wasn't immediate. You figure the definition of insanity that Albert Einstein said is to do the same thing over and over again and expect different results. So for me, it was about what worked, what made sense. We've seen a, an incredible decline in the press and the media, and especially in local elections. There's just, there's no real press. You have some tap-intos and patch and uh, some of these online sites now that are, that are doing a good job covering, but 
for the most part, that's not where it's at. It's about communicating. So, you know, in 2011, I put a lot of emphasis on the press. I thought the debates mattered, which 30 people would show up to. I thought that, you know, some of the candidate forums and all that and the endorsements and you learn some endorsements are actually very valuable because they get out the vote. Other endorsements could be a three person group and it's a name only. I think all that is a learning curve and it's important to go through that process. It's also important, I think, to talk and communicate with those who have been successful in politics and have done it. Politics is always the only industry in the world where someone wants to run for office. And I was in the same boat and they get in, they run for office and they believe they are the expert in that field. There's no other place I've seen that, right? You don't go into a restaurant and tell the chef how to cook. So that was always an interesting challenge in politics. And when I was a county Democratic chair for six years, I, I always saw that. I would see incredibly smart and talented people who did incredible success in their own professional lives and personal lives. And they wanted to, to replicate that in politics. And that's not the case. There's a science to political science, just like there is to anything else. So has anything surprised you about being a senator and being elective office? These are certainly not dull times to be in public service. But what have you learned in that time that now you've gone from being, you know, a new candidate to a seasoned veteran? You just learn more. You know, you learn what works, what doesn't. And you try not to make mistakes. You know, I think there's really nothing more to that. It's just trying to figure it out. And I'm constantly learning. I'm trying to figure out how to do it all the time. I mean, every experience is kind of a different one. And as I go through those experiences, you pick up new skills and then you learn something that may not have worked along the way. And you've been trying to move some legislation around cannabis, around mental health. How are those efforts going and what are you seeing on the ground? Uh, overall, good. We've actually had the largest increase in mental health funding last year. You know, we expanded early intervention by $11 million. What that means is anyone going through depression, alcoholism, anxiety that they have an actual course to get immediate help for a mental health provider or for therapy. So I think that was extremely important. Uh, that was good. I, I'm also a sponsor of home grow legislation to make it, you know, we've legalized cannabis here in the state of New Jersey. And, and I think home grow is an important part to allow people to, to also grow their own cannabis if they want six plants, especially for medical purposes. And now my final question really is, I got 24 hours to spend in Monmouth, New Jersey. How do you recommend I take advantage of your community and experience it all? Definitely head to the Stone Pony, Asbury Park, home of Bruce Springsteen. Visit some of our incredible cultural, historical, and music sites. Head over to Seven Presidents Park in the city of Long Branch. We've actually been increasing tourism pretty dramatically because a lot of people, also because of cost, they're coming to the Jersey Shore. We've got some really, really good weeks in July, August, September. And between Asbury Park, Long Branch, Ocean Grove, we've got some real historical communities here, Freehold Borough. And it's not just art, history, there's food, music, there's so many different things to visit at the Jersey Shore. I like it. Asbury Park will be on, on the bucket list for sure. All right. Hit me up when you're here. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you for your leadership. We love having you in the New Deal Network. You're a personification of the kind of, you know, pro-growth, progressive leader that, that we want in so many different offices around the country. And we appreciate your leadership that we can all, can all look to. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. 
Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. Oh,